Well, we're going to have our Bible reading just now, so let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 13. We're in the middle of the story of the Exodus. It's page 70, if you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles. <clears throat> we're in the middle of the story of the Exodus, and, and uh, we, we have this um, slightly odd uh, chapter that sort of breaks into the story and tells us about some ceremonies and celebrations that are to be uh, uh, practiced by God's people. And uh, we're going to try and understand what that's going to uh, say to us. So, Exodus chapter 13, and we'll read from verse 1, knowing that this is God's Word. The Lord said to Moses, "'Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The, firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal.'" Then Moses said to the people, "'Commemorate this day, the day that you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand.'" Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and Hivites, and Jebusites, the land He swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You are to observe this ceremony in this month for seven days. Eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with His mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as He promised an oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem a lamb with every… Uh, redeem a lamb… sorry, redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your sons ask you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with His mighty hand. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Amen. Thank you so much. So helpful to be reminded that as we open the Word of God, we are 
expecting to see the Lord Jesus. So let's turn our Bibles to Exodus 13 and that passage that we read a moment or two ago. Uh, one of the things that I've been able to do over uh, the last few weeks has been a huge privilege uh, is to look at the, the writings and the life of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer uh, was an American Presbyterian who came over to Europe after the Second World War, and eventually he founded a, a community in the valleys of the Swiss Alps. Uh, uh, you'll see a picture here of the, the view from the, the chalet. A really interesting story. I have so many stories. A really interesting story about that story. They, they, they were being threatened with expulsion from uh, Switzerland. Uh, they were in another uh, little village, and they were ex threatened with expulsion, and they had to uh, secure a property within a very short time period, and they managed to gather up some money for the deposit, and they bought this place without actually being able to see this view because they brought it whenever it was in fog, and uh, uh, they, they moved into it in the darkness, and the next morning they woke up and they opened the, the blinds, as it were, and looked out, and that was the view, which is not bad for a sight-on-scene uh, house, and a uh, really beautiful place. And uh, uh, over the years then, a number of people journeyed through uh, Europe and, and ended up there. It became a sort of a, a retreat center, a, a, a community there. Lots of young people became Christians through its ministry, and uh, others who were Christians were, were helped, and uh, I was able to spend some time there. They've got a study center, a library, and so on, and uh, I imagine there'll be a few uh, illustrations from Schaefer's life over the next few weeks. But one of the things that happened to Schaefer was that in the 1950s, he, he'd been a, a pastor and, and a missionary for over 10 years, and he had what he called his spiritual crisis. He uh, really struggled with the question, is Christianity real? Not because of the intellectual questions, but because he didn't see or feel the reality in his own life or indeed see it in the lives of those uh, around him sometimes. Christianity didn't seem to make a lot of difference to his day-to-day -day life. And so, for a period of months, he really sort of worked through this question, is Christianity real? Is there reality in my Christian life. And he walked the hills and he paced the hail off in his chalet. And uh, he uh, emerged from that time being absolutely convinced of the truth of the Word of God, truth of Christianity, and also then with a determination to live his life uh, in, as he called it, reality, the, 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 the moment by moment reality of God's existence. And some of us thinking made it into a book called A True Spirituality. And he, he recognizes that in that, that it's possible for us as Christians to live in this world amongst a world where people really just uh, think as if everything happens due to natural causes, and that sort of thinking seeps into us, as he said, like a, a fog through an open window would seep into a room. And yet we know from the Scriptures that God is everywhere present, that He's always at work. And so he, he talked about the need to live this moment-by-moment -moment awareness uh, of the reality of God and independence upon Him. And I think we can identify with maybe some of those struggles and, and questions. And this passage, I think, has this desire that we would live with the reality of God's presence and reality uh, 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 in our lives. We've been seeing very helpfully that Exodus is a, a book that is a, like a picture book of salvation. Israelites are slaves to a tyrannical power in Egypt. Eventually, they're rescued from Egypt. They journey to the land that God has promised them. 
and they're delivered by a powerful work of God through the, the blood of the Passover lambs. That means that they, they live rather than die. And it's a picture, of course, of how we, if we're Christians, are slaves to sin and then delivered from sin and death by the blood of another, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. Now, we're right in the middle of this story of the Exodus, and this uh, Passover has just happened. The next chapter will show us the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and the Egyptians being destroyed. And, and the story moves quite quickly through this point. There's probably a few weeks in, in these chapters. And in the midst of all of this, there's this chapter, 13, that we've read that seems a little bit out of place. It, it, it's, it's about a, a ceremony and, and a festival and so on, and then the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And we might well ask, why is it here? And it underlines for us, I think, that, that God really wants these people and us to remember these events. These feasts and ceremonies were really crucial in underlining what God is doing with them and for them. It's going to define who they are as a people, and they must never forget it. And so, for our young people who are writing a few things down, God wants us to remember who we are. He wants us to remember who we are. Remember that Schaefer had this concern that we would live in the reality of God's presence. And the Israelites had a particular help in that because there was that pillar of fire and of cloud that was with them day or night. It was an indication of God's leading. Remember, we sometimes sing, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, and that line in one of the, the verses, let the fire and cloudy pillar guide me all my journey through. That, there is something about guidance in all of this, God leading and guiding. But it's also about God's tangible presence. They just need to, to look up, and it is clear that God is with them day or night. There's no time when God's not with them on this journey. They're going to be hugely disobedient at times. We're going to see that. But God is with them. They're going to be ungrateful and they're going to, to grumble, but God is with them. They're going to be in great difficulties, but God is with them. They're going to face enemies, but God is with them. He's promised to be their God. He's never going to leave them or forsake them. And they have the opportunity to practice this, to experience this moment by moment, because they're able to, to look up and go, oh, yes. God is here. He, he's worked in our lives in power, and, and, and we know that, that He is with us. Now, when they get to the promised land, that pillar of cloud and fire are not going to be there. They're temporary. They're just for this journey. And God gives them instructions in this chapter for something that they'll be able to do when they're in the promised land that will help to underline what He has done for them and that He is with them, and they are His people. There's to be a feast on leavened bread, and there's to be a ceremony, the redemption of the firstborn. They won't be able to look up and see the pillar of cloud and fire, but as they, they practice these things, they'll be able to remember who they are. Well, let, let's think about the particular things that they're to remember. First of all, they're to remember that they've been rescued. They're to remember that they've been rescued and that's the, the, the feast of the unleavened bread, bread without yeast that they eat in the haste of leaving Egypt. It's really tied to the Passover feast, which is described at the end of chapter 12. 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread carries on after the Passover for seven days. Sometimes in the New Testament, the two terms, Passover and Unleavened Bread, they're almost interchangeable. Uh, Passover maybe tends to focus on, on the escape from death and the unleavened bread, on the speed with which they have to leave Egypt and the, the, the lack of yeast and so on, the, the, the urgency of it all. But, but we see as well that there, through this, there's a note of God's power. You've maybe seen that as we've read. For verse 3, for example, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. As they, as they go through this ceremony, they're going to be reminded that, that it was God's power that brought them out of the land. This was no little act on God's part. It was amazing. It was, it was beyond what they could have hoped for or dreamt of. You could never have done it yourself, God was saying to them. I had to do it. There's another note in this festival. The land that they're going to is going to have surrounding peoples that, that will not share their faith, and that at times will be hostile to them. You see verse 5, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. So, God's saying to them, now, I, I've rescued you, you in great power. You're going to live amidst a people who will not recognize me or know me. In the midst of these people, you must remember what I have done for you. You see, God knows them. He, he knows that they'll be tempted to either fit in with those around them or, or, or to be afraid of those around them. He, he knows that they'll be tempted to, to just become indistinct from the nations. And so, He says, just remember what I have done for you. Remember that you are my people that I have rescued with great power. And whenever we start to describe this like that, I think we start to see, don't we, that, that these people are not so very different from us. Oh, they, they live a, a, in a very different place and at a very different time. But their situation and our situation is not so, so terribly different. Maybe some of us this week, for example, have, have been in workplaces or in social circles or in families, or at least we have, as we've watched social media or, or the news or whatever, We've, we've realized that, that we're in the midst of a people who, who really do not believe what we believe and whose understanding of what life is for and, and what is right and, and who God is and if God is there is entirely different from ours. We've been surrounded with, by their understanding of things, and, and it's sort of crept into our lives, maybe like, like fog through an open window in ways that we've never quite begun to appreciate. And we've got to remember that we're people who believe a different story. In fact, we're people who are part of a different story because God has rescued us. He, he has worked in power to make us His own. And we don't take our story or our values uh, from the world around us. We take them from the one who has rescued us. That's what makes us who we are. That is who we are. It's the most important thing about us if we're Christians. And if we're tempted to fear, as sometimes we are, aren't we? If we're tempted to fear, then we've got to remember that God has worked in great power. What did it take for Him to rescue us? An amazing work. And if He's done that, 
then we ought not to fear. He, he is with us just as surely as if we could look up and see a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. Do you see here too the, the importance of explaining this all to the next generation? Because here in verse 8, there's a, a father answering the question of the son. They're doing all the preparations for this festival. Uh, and uh, it's the same then with the redemption of the firstborn. Uh, the, the, the verse 8, for, uh, uh, because our, our children uh, are growing up with the, sometimes with the windows wide open to the fog of this world, aren't they? And we need to say to them, now, don't forget, this is who you are. This is what God has, has done for us. In fact, actually, it's, it's personal. Do you see that in verse 8? This is, as, as the father talks to the son, he doesn't say, son, this is what the Lord has done for us. He says, this is what the Lord has done for me. Do you see that? I, I wonder, as I thought about this, I, I thought, I wonder if we're parents, do our children know what the Lord has done for me? Does it, do our children know our stories? Have you told them how God has worked in your life? Maybe that's something you could do over lunch today. Young people, you could, you could ask your mom and dad, well, do what the minister said, dad. Tell us how God has worked in your life. That will shorten the gap between desserts and so on. Uh, 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 you, you, but they should. They should know our stories. So remember, you see, that you've been rescued. There's a parallel with the Passover and the Lord's Supper, of course, in all of this, where we specifically focus on how God has rescued us. But we do it every time we come together and worship, don't we? Maybe you walk into church uh, cold, not just cold because of the weather, but cold because of your spirit. You've been ground down by what has happened through the week, the, the, the pressures of this world that, that, that does not know the Lord has sort of just uh, uh, suppressed the reality of God's presence. And, and then you, you come together here and you you see your brothers and sisters, and you begin to, to sing and to pray, and, and we hear, and we, we fellowship, and we say, God willing, we say, oh, yes, Lord, this is who I am. This is what you've done for me. Thank you. And we go back for another week. Remember that God has rescued you. And then the second thing, and maybe a little bit more briefly, remember that you belong. Remember that you belong. There's a ceremony described here. It's odd in some ways to us. It's the redemption of the firstborn. Now, I know that you've, you've seen that all through this story that the idea of the firstborn is very important. Israel is described as God's firstborn son. There's the death of the firstborn and the tenth plague. And now God says, every firstborn belongs to me, animal and people. And the firstborn represents what is to come. It's not just that that one person is special. It's that they represent the, the whole of what's to come. So the firstborn of the harvest, for example, represents the whole harvest. The whole harvest belongs to God. The firstborn of the family, the whole family belongs to God. And so what happens is that if a firstborn is the firstborn animal, if it's a clean animal, remember the Israelites divided animals into clean and unclean. If it's a clean animal, then it's sacrificed. But if it's an unclean animal like a donkey, then either it's killed or it could be redeemed by the blood of a lamb. 
something else sacrificed in its place. We, we use that word redeemed a lot in Christian circles, don't we? we? We need to remind ourselves what it means. It means to buy back at a price. Remember in the days of the pawn shops, maybe they'll be coming again, who knows? You, you, you pawned a watch or a piece of jewelry, and, and then when the pay came in at the end of the month or whatever it was, you went and you, you bought it back, and you hoped that somebody else hadn't got it. And amazingly, straight after talking about unclean donkeys, the passage speaks about firstborn sons, because we too need to be redeemed. Something must be offered in our place. We belong to, to God, but rather than be offered ourselves, something else is offered in our place, saying that we are sinners too, that blood has to be shed for it. So, you see what this ceremony is saying? God is saying, you belong to me. You're mine, but, but rather than die, you may live as blood is shed for you. So, Philip Reichen writes on this, and he imagines a young boy coming to understand all of this about himself and, and saying to his father, so, so, Dad, now put me over this again. So, when I was little, you dedicated me to God, and in order to do that, you had to pay a price, just like you would for a donkey. And the son, Reichen says, would learn from that, that he has a, a purpose in this life, that someone paid the price for him, and that now he belongs to God. You can perhaps see the, the parallel. We've already seen a, a parallel here in this passage to the Lord's Supper. We see a parallel here in baptism, don't we? What happens as a, a, a parent, as parents come and they dedicate their children to the Lord and trust Him to, to work in their lives. Uh, and really, these two sacraments are prefigured in this passage as it's, it shows us what the foundations of being Christian are. So, you see what all of this is doing? It's saying, you belong to God. You, you've been bought with a price, and you belong to Him. Here you are. You're going to live in this land. You're going to be surrounded by people who don't know this story, who don't believe in this story. But you're going to do this and, and remember that you belong to the Lord. It's picked up in the New Testament, isn't it? First Peter, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from you, for your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, who are we? Who do we need to remember that we are? We're a people who have been redeemed, a people who've been bought. We belong to the Lord. And the way the New Testament then takes that is to say, well, now, if that's the case, you live for Him because you're not your own. You, you honor Him. You, you, you turn away from what would displease you, and you give yourself to Him more and more. Remember who you are. Heidelberg Catechism. First question. You remember it? What is your only comfort in life and death? And, and, and our forefathers said, here's what we want to stand on, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, 
all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. I'm not my own. I'm living for Him. So, you see, God says to these people, I want you to remember who you are. I'm going to help you to remember who you are. I've saved you in power. You belong to me. A couple of questions just as we finish. Has this happened to you? Maybe we're here today and we're thinking, yeah, I sort of know this, but I know it from a distance as if I'm looking in on it from outside. What a tragedy it would be to, to, to miss the, the blessing of belonging to the living God who loves you so much that he will give his own son to make you his own. Don't stay from him. And then the other question, it's a Schaefer question, I guess. Are we living in the reality of these things? Is there a moment-by-moment -moment awareness that as we walk through this life with all of its challenges and difficulties and opposition and trials, that we are His because He has saved us. And He'll never let us go. We belong. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that as we're going to see with the Israelites, they often forgot who they were, and, and we do the same. We, we know that the fog of this world just creeps into our hearts and our lives and our minds, and, and we forget who we are. Help us, Lord, to know that if we're Christians, you have saved us with a, a mighty work. And help us to know, Lord, that we forever belong to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.